Amen. If I were to give you some names, what's the first thing you think of? The Dallas Cowboys, the Chicago Bulls, the New York Yankees. If you're like me, if you're the Cowboys, you may not think good things about them, but I automatically think of their uniforms, right? You can imagine, and if you don't watch sports, you may not think of anything, but if you can imagine, you think of their uniforms, their logo. You might think of Michael Jordan with the Chicago Bulls. You might think of the Dallas Cowboys star that they have on their helmet. It immediately conjures up something in your mind. What do you think of when you think of our church? You know, Pastor Reed asked me about a year ago. He said, if you could describe our church in one word, what would you say? And I thought about it for a second, and I said, I would probably say something like family or fellowship or love or potluck. No, not that, but... (laughs) Something that has to do with like the warmth that we feel together, right? If you think of one word that describes our church. And then he asked me, he said, if you had one word that you wish described our church that's not the word you said, what would it be? And there's nothing wrong with our church being a loving church or a family church. But if you had one word that you wish described our church, that you wanted our church to be, what would it be? And I thought about it, and I said, healthy. See, because health doesn't depend on numbers, necessarily. It doesn't depend on programs. But it's something a big church, a small church, or somewhere in between can be. Now, I'm not saying our church isn't healthy. But I want us to think this morning about what defines our church. What defines our church? Maybe in your mind, it's a little squirrel that sits on top of the counters in Bible study, right? And when we get off track, it starts staring at one of us. Maybe you think it's the church building. Maybe it's people that you see here. Some of my friends, some other pastors might look at this church and say, oh yeah, that's where Lance pastors, that's Lance's church. Now, I don't think it's my church by any means, but you understand what I'm saying. Maybe other people in the community think about Operation Christmas Child. The things that we do as a church. What defines our church? And what do we want to define our church? Like I said earlier, I think we would want our church to be healthy. To be healthy. And if you look at this text with me in Acts chapter 2, we find what I believe is a healthy, thriving, growing church. Now, as we look at this passage in Acts, we find that Acts, because of the nature of the book, sometimes it is descriptive, meaning it is just telling what happened. And those things may not apply to us today. Next week, we'll look at Peter and John healing the man at Solomon's porch. I don't expect any of you to do that next week, okay? So sometimes it describes, it lays out for us what happened. And then other times it's more prescriptive. It tells us how we should live. It gives us principles for living. And I think as we look at this text together, we see clearly how we can develop a healthy, thriving church. What can we learn from these apostles, from the early church, about developing a healthy, thriving church. What was it about their ministry 
that connected them, that gave them such a good reputation. And as we see in this summary statement this morning, I hope it encourages you, encourages us, on how we can develop this kind of church culture here. And I want to say a few words about summary statements in Acts. We see at the end of Acts 2 this statement, but it doesn't just apply to this period of time, but these summary statements at the end of the chapters sometimes apply to the rest of the book or the rest of church life in the book. Look at the end of Acts 4. We see a similar thought or a similar type of statement there about the early church. And these summary statements were typical of Greek historians at this time, which Luke was, in describing what life was like as a church. This is what life continued to be like even after Acts 2. So this is Luke giving Theophilus a picture of what the church life was like. Not all of this happens in between Acts 2 and Acts 3, but this is what they continued to do. So let's look this morning at how can we develop a healthy church culture. First of all, learn how to have the right priorities. Learn how to have the right priorities. Look at me at verse 42. And they devoted themselves. What does it mean to devote yourself to something? It means to persevere in, to continue in, to be steadfast in something. If you remember at the end of Acts 1, if you remember at the end of Acts 1, we saw the apostles persevering in prayer, continuing in prayer as a group. It's something you have to work at. It's something you are committed to, that you're holding steadfast in. It comes from the Greek word proskitero. And we see that they're devoted, that they're committed, that they are working at these different areas. And there's four of them. These were their priorities. If you think about churches today, what do they prioritize? Some of them, it's their worship team. Some of it, them, it's their outreach programs. I know those things are necessarily bad, but what do they prioritize? What did the early church prioritize? Look with me at verse 42. They devoted themselves, first of all, to the apostles' doctrine, to sound teaching. Teaching was in part of the everyday lives of the early church. It was more than just the Sunday gathering. It was an integrated part of their lives. What was the Apostles' Doctrine? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Apostles' Doctrine was, first of all, teaching in the Old Testament. Now, you might say we're in the New Testament. Why are they teaching the Old Testament? Well, if you remember last week, Peter uses the Old Testament four or five times. They saw the gospel in the Old Testament because the gospel tells us the story of Jesus. And we clearly see that in the Old Testament as well. So they taught the Old Testament. Secondly, and probably primarily, they taught the life of Christ, who he was, how he lived. Remember, these apostles 
were eyewitnesses of Christ. They saw him. They spent time with him. They hung around him. So they taught Christ who he was, what he did, how he lived. And then lastly, I would say it would look much like what we see in the epistles. How do we live because of the gospel? In fact, some scholars believe that this teaching ends up becoming what we see in the different epistles later in the New Testament. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. We'll apply some of these later, but think about this. How often do you devote yourself to teaching? Now, that doesn't just mean you don't fall asleep in my message, okay? How often are you devoted and committed to studying God's word? Secondly, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to fellowship with one another. It comes from the Greek word koinonia. It's a close brotherly bond with one another. It was personal. It wasn't just a formality, but they were close with one another. Now think of this. They came from all these different backgrounds and ethnicities and lines of work. There were rich people. There were poor people. There were old people. There were young people. They didn't really have anything else in common. So what united them? It was the gospel. It was fellowship around the gospel. They had a common bond of unity. The gospel is the center of what they had in common. We'll talk more about this in a moment. Thirdly, the breaking of bread. Now, this could just be meals, potlucks, you know, pitchins, things like that. And actually later on in verse 46, I think that is what they are talking about. But here, we see a little word before the breaking of bread. It's the word the. It's an article. And it means a specific breaking of bread. And I believe they're talking about communion. Communion was commanded by Christ for them to do. They were celebrating communion. They were recognizing the death of Christ on the cross. This is more than just a meal, but this is remembering the life and death of Christ. Christ said, do this until I come again. So they devoted themselves, committed themselves, persevered in remembering the gospel. That's really what we do in communion. It is remembering what Christ has done for us. And then lastly, they were committed to prayer. We've seen this idea before, persevering in prayer, depending on God, saying, God, I can't do any of this myself. I am solely dependent on you. Now, what happened the last time they did this, that they were devoted in prayer? Pentecost happened. They spoke in tongues. 3,000 people were saved through Peter's message. But it was only because they were devoted, they persevered in prayer. Notice with me the result of this in verse 43. It says, And awe came upon every soul. This word awe is like a fear 
and excitement. It encapsulated them. It said, an awe came upon every soul. Now, I think this could refer to the church, but I actually don't think it's that narrow. I think it was also the people watching them around the community. This sense of fear, of awe, of respect captured them as they looked at the early church. What a testimony for the gospel that even the unsaved, even those watching the church, were so encapsulated by what was going on with the early church that this sense of awe overcame them. It said, And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, healings, miracles, speaking in tongues. Again, there are prescriptive parts of Acts telling us things we should do as a church. There are descriptive things. These are things that just happened during that time. Things that God used in the establishment of the early church. It reminds me of a basketball team that I once saw. We went to a senior trip in the wilds, and they had a five-on-five tournament. And we played this basketball team, my friends and I did, that were in perfect sync. We found out later they'd won the Tennessee State Championship for basketball. Now, I was starting for my team, so that tells you we weren't very good, okay? And they were, their passing, their communication, their just athleticism was beyond us. They'd been playing together for six whole years, and they were just in perfect sync and communication. That's what happens when a group is cohesive, when a group is committed to something. Friends, this morning, commit yourself to doctrine, to learning and growing, either from the teaching here in the pulpit, the teaching in Sunday school that we get every week, the different Bible studies that we have, Bible study in your own life as well. Are you committed to sound doctrine? I hope you're committed to studying the Bible on your own, to learning from God's Word each and every day. Don't let the spiritual food that you get here in the pulpit be the only time that you open up God's Word. Commit to sound doctrine. Secondly, commit to fellowship. Find people in your church that you can fellowship with, that may not look or sound like you, that may be a little different. Take steps to fellowship with those in the congregation who you may not see all the time. Maybe they go to a different Bible study than you. Maybe they have a different work schedule. Commit to fellowship. Thirdly, remember Christ's death in communion and just every day. Commit yourself to remembering Christ's life and death each and every day, reminding you of the gospel. And lastly, to prayer. In prayer that you're depending on God. Let God be the focus of your life. Each and every day, waking up and saying, God, I can't do this on my own. I desperately need you. I desperately need a relationship with you. First of all, learn how to prioritize the right things. This was a mark of the early church. 
Secondly, learn how to commit to unity. Or learn how to contribute to unity. Look at verse 44. And all who believed were what? Together. All who believed were together. Not just in the same place. It's being together in spirit, in mindset, in doctrine, in fellowship. They all equally as a church prioritized all the right things. And therefore they were together. They had this bond. And all who believed were together. And notice... And they had all things in common. It didn't mean necessarily that they had the same sports teams that they liked or drove the same cars. But they had the things that mattered in common. They had unity around doctrine. They had unity around the gospel. This is a type of unity that we should intensely desire as a church. Now does this mean we're all inclusive? And every other place that calls itself a church, we partner with. No, in fact, I think it's the opposite. I think this causes us to want to preserve the gospel. And when we see other organizations, other churches that aren't preaching the gospel as they should, we confront them, we question them, and we refuse to partnership with them. Not because we don't want to be inclusive. But because the unity we have, we want to preserve because it is important. These were not ecumenical people. These were not people who were willing to bend on the gospel. These were people who held firm to the gospel message. Notice the strength of their unity in verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were selling their stuff. Property seems to be in view here. They were selling large amounts of land, their possessions, their proceeds, all the things that they had. Was this required? No. Is this part of being a Christian? You just sold everything you had? No, I don't think so. Was it because they thought Christ was coming back right then? There's some people that think that. They think, oh, Christ is coming back right then, so I'm going to sell everything they have. No, I don't think that's what they were doing either. Rather, they were doing this because people had need. Because there were those in the life of the church who had need. And so they gave of their own possessions. They gave of what was just worldly and temporary. And the point of this is not to say you guys need to give more as a church, or you need to sell everything that you have as a church and give it to people who have need, but it is to show the unity, the generosity, the love that they had as a church. Notice as we continue to see their unity, and day by day in verse 46, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They were worshiping together. This use of breaking of bread, I really do think, means having fellowship around a table. They were fellowshipping with one another, 
each and every day that we're worshiping every day in their homes with one another. It says, and they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. They were thankful together. They received what they had, even if it wasn't much, with generosity and with thankfulness. I mentioned the basketball team I saw earlier. I see so many basketball teams today that have all the talent in the world, but they have no unity. They have no continuity. They have no friendship. You see all these NBA teams with these players getting millions of dollars, and they have all the talent of the world, but they can't win. And why is that? Because they have no unity. We read this passage earlier. Turn to Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2 with me for just a moment. I want to show us what I think the key is to unity. In chapter 1, we see Paul's call to unity. He says in verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in what? One spirit, with one mind, striving together for the work of the gospel. He calls them to this unity. And then in chapter 2, he shows them the key to finding this unity. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the spirits, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being what? Of the same mind, of one accord, this unity. Having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. And how do we do this? Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition. What leads to unity? It's not thinking of myself. It's not thinking of my own desires. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, not wanting what others have, not being envious, not being jealous. But instead, there's the key word in Humility. Humility is the key to unity. If you want to look at a church and why they split and why they have all these problems of disunity, it's because they're proud. It's because they're not humble. It's because they only think of themselves. He says, in humility, what? Count others as more significant than yourself. If you want others to be bonded to you in fellowship, if you want others to be of the same mindset with you, think of their needs before your own. Put them on the pedestal. Care about what they need. You might say, well, what if they don't do that back to me? What if they don't think of my needs? It's called humility. You don't know if they're going to do the same back to you. Verse 4, let each of you Look, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What brings unity in the body of Christ? 
It is humility. And who is the perfect example of this humility? Look at verse 5. Have this mind among you, this humble mind, which was in Christ Jesus. He was the humble one. He was the one who originally didn't think of his own interests. He was equal with God. He was God. He had everything that he could ever want, but he emptied himself. He gave of himself. It says he took on the form of a servant. Christ humbled himself for what? For unity. So that we could be together with him in one body. C.S. Lewis says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. If you want unity in the body of Christ, be humble. Think of others' interests. Put others above yourself. This is not easy for us to do. It's not easy to be generous sometimes. It's not easy to think of others before I think of myself. These are hard lessons, but they're essential, but they're important. And they're what I believe the early church devoted themselves to this unity of mind. Now look lastly with me. We learn how to contribute to unity Look last with me. Learn how to depend on the Lord. Learn how to depend on the Lord. Verse 47. Praising God. They were thankful to others for their gifts. They were also praising the Lord. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. They praised the Lord. They were thankful to God. They depended on Him. Who's the one that is giving them this increase in number? It's God. It is the Lord. They praised Him. They recognized that God is the giver of all good gifts. You know, Peter had just preached a sermon in which 3,000 people had been saved. And if Peter were maybe a modern-day evangelist, he might write a book on how to preach a sermon that gets 3,000 people saved. But instead, they depended on God. Why? Because they recognized that it's really God that all these things come from. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We see God's work in salvation. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The Father planned salvation for us. If you're saved this morning, it's only because God looked on you and said, I will save you. It's only through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul continues to talk about him. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood. The Father planned salvation. A lot of people argue, is it God's sovereignty? Is it man's responsibility? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. God planned salvation. Man repents of their sin and believes in that promise. And then Christ died on the cross for our sins so that we could have redemption in him. Look a little bit further down. Look a little bit further down at the work of the Spirit. Verse 13. In him you were also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Father planned salvation. The Son accomplishes salvation. The Spirit seals our salvation. You never have to worry a day in your life on whether or not you've lost your salvation. You have that promise secured in God. So as we witness, as we share the gospel with others, we praise God. We thank God. We sing songs praising God for his work and salvation. Because it's not based on anything we can do other than the fact that we were faithful to following him. We're just instruments. Instruments used to accomplish the purposes of God. We could do nothing on our own. But it's only through what God has done through us. We talked about the ministries, the work of the Spirit in salvation a few weeks ago. And if you're like me, I'm humbled whenever I think about that. That even though we share the gospel, it's the Spirit who draws someone to salvation, who illumines their minds so they can understand the Word of God. It's the Spirit that regenerates their hearts when they repent and believe. And it's the Spirit who seals them in salvation. So what did you and I do? We were faithful to the message and promise of God. They were praising God. They were also having favor with all the people. Who is this people? It's those outside of themselves. Those in the community. They were not coarse. Some people think I'm a Christian and that means no one is going to like me. And that may be true if they hate the gospel. But don't just make them not like you because you're not likable. Okay? Don't just be unlovable. But if someone is going to hate you, make it because of the gospel. The early church showed grace. They showed favor. Now, would they be persecuted? Yes, absolutely. And we'll see that soon. 
But at this point, they had a good reputation with the community. They praised God. They had favor with all the people. And what happened? And the Lord added to their number daily. Does this mean we're going to have a big mega church? No. Again, remember that it's God who works in salvation. He brings the increase. He brings this growth. And that may not happen to every church. It may not happen in our church. But we're faithful to be in a healthy church, prioritizing the right things, doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, remembering Christ and the gospel, and prayer. We commit to those things together. And we praise God for whatever increase he decides to bring. These are things that contribute to the health and the vitality of a church. As I close my sermon this morning, I want to talk about what are things that don't contribute to a healthy church. First of all, avoid legalism and lawlessness. Legalism and lawlessness. Legalism, focusing too much on the rules of life and thinking they earn you a relationship with the author of life. And lawlessness, thinking I can live however I want with no consequences. They detract from the gospel. Secondly, avoid selfishness and pride. Thinking of myself. Thinking of myself before I think of others. It detracts from unity. It destroys churches. And lastly, avoid foolishness and ungratefulness. Foolish thinking, not being wise, not being humble, and ungratefulness. Not recognizing that every good and perfect gift comes down from God above. These are detractors to a healthy church. These things are what makes the church look bad and foolish in the world. And they do not contribute to the health of the body of Christ. Friends, learn how to prioritize the right things. Learn how to commit to unity above and beyond your own self, your own interests, your own priorities. And then learn how to depend on the Lord. That it is God who works. And we may get frustrated and tired sometimes waiting on him work but we trust in him and in his promise let's pray father we thank you for your word we thank you for how you work through your word in our lives god may we be faithful as we sang this morning may those who come behind us find us faithful may our children grandchildren those who are in this church generations after we, lay, after we leave, may they know of us that we were faithful and steadfast to the gospel. Lord, may we be obedient children to you and your work. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.